0: Welcome to Dun & Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where we are still swimming with the Swans. Taking a look at Alicia's version going through Feud, Capote vs. the Swans, currently rolling on FX and Hulu. We have now made it to Block C. We are going to get a look inside Truman's apartment talk about paperweights, talk about John O'Shea, a little bit about Jack Dunphy, as well as go visit the hottest lunch place in New York City, Lacote Basque. We're getting in deeper water now. Let's investigate. goodness so we're coming back from the second commercial break we enter block c here investigators opening this scene in 1975 with an older distinguished jack dunphy this is the first time we've seen jack he and truman have been lovers since 1948 a very very long time truman capote cannot fool jack dunphy a little bit attached here for my trashy divorces listeners the trashy divorce of Jack Dunphy is going to come for you sometime soon. Jack's first wife was a very talented dancer named Joan McCracken. She was legendary. Joan also went on to marry Bob Fossey, That is before Bob Fosse splits with Joan McCracken to take up with Gwen Verdon. So much connected. In this scene in 1975, we see Truman. He needs an idea. He's washed up, most certainly struggling with misuse of alcohol and drugs. And Jack Dunphy, after this many years, like, he's kind of had enough. Jack never really leaves Truman. They are together from 1948 onward to Truman's death, although sometimes they are closer than others. Both had their own things But there was something about each of them that for each of them, they kept coming back to each other for almost four decades. Truman Capote is washed up. How is he ever going to be able to write again? Jack and Truman are really struggling, each with their own demons and each other. This particular scene does take place in Truman Capote's apartment building in the UN building. Again, I am overwhelmed, flabbergasted, delighted to see the amount of attention and detail that the producers are putting into these sets. I got a little joy when I saw the table full of paperweights. Effortlessness is a myth. Again, I want to pull out David Nash from Eldecor.com writing about Truman's apartment. To capture the essence of Capote's pad, the design team searched far and wide to find appropriate tat and the author's iconic Victorian sofa. In 1965, the same year that Babe and Bill Paley upgraded to their sprawling Upper East Side abode, Capote moved from a rented Brooklyn Heights basement apartment. That is absolutely true. From 1956 to 1965, Truman lives... For that decade with a guy named Oliver Smith in his downstairs apartment. In 1965, Truman moves to the 22nd floor of the United Nations Plaza. He will buy this home for $62,000, about $590,000 today. He buys his apartment at the U.N. Plaza with his royalties from In Cold Blood. The U.N. Plaza is located at 1st Avenue and 49th Street. It's not a bad address, overlooking the west side to the East River. Babe from Truman would be about 6 blocks east, 15 blocks north to Central Park. It's about a 30-minute walk. Again from David Nash, quoting Rickard, the set designer. I found the floor plan, and there were a fair number of photos I added a couple additional elements like a pass-through in the kitchen to open the set up a bit more for shooting. The designer even had Capote's views of the East River and the United Nations reproduced. It really is something extraordinary to see. Ricker goes on, We went to the actual apartment that a lovely woman lives in now so that we could photograph the view and blow it up to put outside the set window. Reproducing the apartment. Where Capote was photographed by Horst P. Horst for magazines, including Vogue, and by Arnold Newman in 1977 for a now-iconic image of the author in repose on his Victorian rosewood sofa, was a dream for the production team. Explains Ricker, he had such an eclectic, sort of playful aesthetic. I had the sense he bought whatever he liked and just threw it all together. The Horst and Newman photos, along with research materials like the catalog from Bonhams and Butterfield's November 2006 sale, The Private World of Truman Capote, were central to reimagining one of the production's principal sets. Ricker adds, I've done a fair number of projects based on real people, and when you've got the reference materials and they're as fabulous as Truman, there's no point in reinventing the wheel the search for decorator items and furnishings from collections of paperweights to a taxidermy rattlesnake was more like a fun scavenger hunt. Ricker says gleefully somehow cherished the set decorator was actually able to find one of those vipers. I do have a few fun little bits, some commentary from contemporaries about what Truman Capote's Apartment was actually like taking this from Truman Capote, in which various friends, enemies, acquaintances, and detractors recall his turbulent career, assembled by George Plimpton. This is from Lenora Hornblow about Truman's apartment. Curiously enough, Truman's apartment at the UN Plaza was a very southern apartment. I don't know why. It had Tiffany lamps and a wonderful feeling of age and time which is difficult to do in the U.N. plaza. That disaster of a building, that air-conditioned nightmare. I'm very grateful to Henry Miller for that title. He didn't mean it for a building, but it fits. Mm. Lenore Hershey editor says about Truman's apartment, he collected paperweights, but mostly portraits of himself. Large ones, little ones, photographs, paintings, they were all over the place including the famous one of him on the sofa, the Cecil Beaton one, and the painting by Rene Boucher, which he didn't like. He collected Victorian things, Tiffany Glass, Babe Paley had given him a lot of things. The apartment had a lot of reds, a lot of dark colors, a lot of books. Jan Cushing, with one more comment here, very eccentric, very depressing, I mean, it was run down. It had a beautiful view, but just messy. He didn't look like he was happy in the apartment. I think he was happier at pear trees across the street. Oh, friends, I do love the details. So why am I getting so jazzed up about the paperweights? Some of you might know this story, but again, let's back up the bus, because when you know, you know, and that really is going to strike you watching this scene, all those paperweights. Truman Capote has been collecting paperweights since he was given his first real significant one from France's grande dame of literature, Colette. It is in 1953-1954 early that Jean Cocteau introduces Truman Capote to Colette, who in this year is 80 years old, very close to her death. Colette will pass away not long after this. Colette is the author of the Gigi and Claudine novels, and really legendary for not only her writing, but also her scandals and her spider webs. This particular meeting is so well written about in Sam Wasson's Fifth Avenue, 5 a.m. How does it all break down? Why are paperweights important to Truman? Very much a key moment in his life from Sam Wasson about this meeting. In full recline, Colette racked with arthritis, no doubt smiled at Truman's author's photograph on the dust jacket of Other Voices' Other Rooms. Staring out at her with his languid eyes and slick lips, the boy's salacious look was one the old woman knew well. In her day, she had rocked Paris with a few success to scandals of her own, both on the page and off. Now here was this rascal with his angel's face, a hungry angel's face. How delicious. She felt for sure there existed a king of artery between them. And even before he entered her bedroom, Truman sensed it too. Bonjour, madame, bonjour. They hardly spoke each other's language, but as he approached her bedside, Their bond grew from assured to obvious. The artery was in the heart. After the teas were served, the room got warmer and Colette opened Truman's 23-year-old hand. In it, she placed a crystal paperweight with a white rose at its center. What does it remind you of, she asked. What images occur to you? Truman turned it around in his hand. Young girls in their communion dresses, he said. At this point in time, Truman's 23, his swans have been his mother, Harper Lee, his trio in New York City, Carol, Una, and Gloria, also Phoebe Pierce-Vreeland, Marilyn and Jennifer Jones. Babe and her swan crew were not even in the picture yet. But you see, whatever it is, is in... Truman Capote all along, young girls in their communion dresses. Sam Wasson continues, The remark pleased Colette. Very charming, she said, very apt. Now I can see what Jean told me is true. He said, don't be fooled, my dear. He looks like a ten-year-old angel, but he is ageless and has a very wicked mind. She gave it, the paperweight, to him a souvenir. Capote would collect paperweights for the rest of his life, but years later the white rose was still his favorite. Truman took it with him almost everywhere. Colette does pass away in 1954, leaving a profound effect on Truman Capote and the installation of the collection of paperweights. This pan, this scene of Truman's apartment in this time frame, with all the paperweights on the table, really did get me pretty excited. Such a visual feast. Now is a fantastic time to take a quick break, hear from a few sponsors. When we return, we are going to come back with the beginning of the ill-fated affair of Truman Capote and John O'Shea. Okay, so still in this scene, Jack Dunphy, Truman Capote fighting in this... Uh, beautifully set, detailed to what it was really like apartment of Truman's at the UN Plaza. At the end of the scene, Truman Capote is lamenting the old him, the young, the wonderkind, And again, drugs and drink are doing the thing on Truman, and Truman is off to the bathhouses. And sure, bathhouses are a thing in the city, and perhaps Truman and John O'Shea meet in one. That is one of the rumors going around. There are a lot of rumors that go around about Truman and John O'Shea. I don't know if there is any need to make that any more salacious because the story is salacious enough. John O'Shea, he is a banker. He's a married banker, an Irish Catholic, married four years banker with four kids, works at a bank in New Jersey. John O'Shea is a wannabe writer. Again, from George Plimpton's book, I have William Styron, the writer, talking here about his recollections of how all this went down. William Styron says, We were both house guests at Kay Graham's house in Washington. Everyone else had gone to bed. He, Treeman, got very confidential and frank with me, and he just spilled out so many things. I remember him telling me about his first encounter with his lover, John O'Shea. He said that O'Shea had come to his apartment in the United Nations Plaza to talk over finance. They were sitting there talking and this sexual excitement passed between them. He hadn't expected this because he was getting all the loving he needed in terms of just being carnal, getting late or whatever. Truman being Truman. O'Shea said, can you tell me where the bathroom is? And Truman said, well, yes, it's right over there. Truman said that as O'Shea passed him, he leaned down and kissed him, not on the mouth, but on the cheek or the brow or something. And Truman said, my heart was racing like a maniac. I said, would you please stop that in about 15 years? That was it. They just fell into each other's arms and That was the beginning of this wild romance. Actually, I'm going to pop in one more comment here before we continue on. This is from Lester Persky, film producer. He will recall, Truman brought this man around to whom he introduced me, a middle-aged, dark-haired man who looked a little like W.C. Fields. It was John O'Shea. When I was with him, he was absolutely well-behaved, polite, and kind of formal. Truman told me this man had a wife and family of four children. I'm sure Truman did something very evil without intending it, because he disrupted this man's life. Now, O'Shea was obviously waiting to have his life disrupted, waiting to be pulled out from that existence with his family. But if it hadn't been for Truman, he might have gone on and in ignorance in the bliss of that ignorance, in what his dissatisfaction was. At first, I actually thought he was a good influence on Truman because here's a man who is as straight arrow as anybody. He was too square. He was presentable. He came on like you could run him for sheriff of San Diego. You couldn't envision the two of them in any embarrassing situation. I mean, you couldn't. He seemed perfectly proper so I thought that he might be a stabilizing influence. I later found out, from Truman mostly, and from my own experiences, that, of course, he was not a stabling influence at all. These recollections are taken from a chapter set around 1972. It is 1972, John O'Shea and Truman are a thing, so no wonder Jack Dunphy's a little mad in 1975. We are in no way done with John O'Shea. I'm saving some of the prime information for him when we make it around to episode two. I have a whole lot more dish. For our Patreon folks, though, be sure to check right after this episode drops. I do have a surprise bonus, not done yet, focusing in on John O'Shea's daughter. Her name is Kate Harrington, did a little bit of digging on Kate's relationship with her father and Truman Capote. Really kind of interesting on that one. That's coming up, not done yet, number 81 over on Patreon. Let's go ahead and roll right through the C block. I really want to get to the D block and the reaction about La Basque 1965 so we can make it into episode two. So in the remainder of this scene, we are getting Truman Capote and John O'Shea together with three of his swans. Babe Paley, Slim Keith, and CZ Guest. We have covered each of these ladies' stories on their own in past episodes, but there's nothing quite like a lady's lunch. From this introduction, we already know Babe Paley. We learn that Slim Keith is shrewd and smart. Very, very true. CZ Guest, lovely and skilled at gardening. All true. Of course, this ladies' lunch with Truman and John O'Shea takes place at LaCote Basque. Lakote Basque, the place to see and be seen. Let's enter a whole new set in a whole new world. Again, high praise to the attention to detail, the precision, the beauty of this. Again, from David Nash, the Lakote Basque set is filmed at Steiner Studios in Brooklyn, but again, could have fooled me. From Eldecor.com, La Cote Basque was the place to see and be seen among New York's high society. The production designers poured through archival photos to meticulously recreate the hand-painted murals that originally adorned the space. As central to the disintegration of Capote's relationships to his swans, as are the characterizations of Babe, CZ, Slim, Lee, and Truman themselves, is the title location of a chapter in his unfinished novel, Answered Prayers, that was excerpted in the November 1975 issue of Esquire, Le Côte Basque 1965. Opened by Henri Soulet in the late 50s, Le Côte Basque was, as the New York Times put it, the high society temple of classic French cuisine. There are a number of dishes here that I'm not going to be able to pronounce correctly, but I would like you to know those classic French cuisine dishes did get served to the likes of Jacqueline Kennedy, Aristotle Onassis, Nan Kemper, Wallace Simpson, Diana Vreeland, Mary Wells, and of course, the Swans. It was also a site for sharing gossip between friends, musings, and secrets that once made public would prove as deadly to Capote's career and social standing as the venom once produced in life by his taxidermied rattlesnake. But recreating the restaurant's interior wasn't as easy as one would expect. There aren't many images, says Ricker, who found the best interior photo on the cover of an old menu. I also tracked down the 1992 movie Light Sleeper, with Willem Dafoe and Susan Sarandon that was shot there. So I got screenshots of every scene. Originally located at 5 East 55th Street, on what is now the site of Ralph Lauren's equally popular CNBC restaurant, The Polo Bar, La Cote Basque eventually moved a block over to 60 West 55th Street in 1995. Some 20 years after the story, that solidified Capote's bleak future. Its doors closed for good in 2004, though the address is now home to Elaine Ducasse's neighborhood favorite, Benoit, New York. To bedeck the high-end French eatery for Capote vs. the Swans, the design team poured through archival imagery of the original location and went to town. It was this playful-themed restaurant that purported to be on the Bosque coast with little striped awnings and fabulous murals by Bernard Lamont, explains Ricker. We hand-painted versions of those murals, had all the tufted leather banquets and chairs made, and actually pieced together the bar from drugstore cabinetry designed for the production of West Side Story. Then we worked really hard to get the beautiful colors of caramel and butterscotch, that would envelop you in the space with the swans. At this particular scene, there's definitely some interesting conversation. We're talking about Drew Hines and Princess Margaret and the Windsors and Prince Charles. There's a lot of dish to drop about those characters. And then Anne Woodward shows up. From our B-Block episode, just the last episode, it gives all the details on the actual feud between Truman Capote and Anne Woodward that started all the way back in San Moritz in 1956. The thing I want you to know about this particular scene is that CZ Guest, lunchtime guest at this particular scene, and CZ's husband are both guests of Edith Baker's. At that party for Wallace Simpson, given the night of October 30th, 1955, the night that Ann Woodward kills her husband, Billy. CZ was one of the 4854 guests that, after the shooting of Billy Woodward, was questioned by police, where they all sang the same tune. I love CZ here. Truman is like, yeah, you can't sue me for libel. We all know what happened. CZ Knows what she got asked by the authorities after that. But I do love her line here. He has a typewriter and you don't, Anne. (laughs) All the swans know the score about Anne. They always have. And here's the thing about Anne Woodward. She was never in. High society took her along because they had to, not because they wanted to. Anne Woodward was never embraced or welcomed by these ladies. It is a long lunch, it is a boozy lunch, and here John O'Shea, at least in this story, is encouraging Truman to look at what he's got. You need to tell this story. Again, a little license here, but in the series, Truman is writing again. He's found it, and he will write it, much to his destruction. When we come back, we are going to talk about the release of Lacote Basque 1965, that chapter in Esquire. Nothing, nothing, nothing will ever be the same. I have a lot of commentary from many of the players in the set about what Truman was thinking. How did it all roll down? Truman Capote really caused quite a stir. Those stories and more are coming for you on our next Dundee. Patreon, folks, don't forget, I've got a bonus not done yet for you about Kate Harrington coming right after this episode. Investigators, if you are looking to get in on those not done yet bonuses or early and ad-free episodes, patreon.com slash done and done is the place to go to find out more information. One and all, thank you for tuning in today and joining me as we swim with the swans. I am so grateful. To you for spending your time with me in all the ways you cheer and support the podcast. Y'all are simply the best until we meet again. Finally wrapping up episode one, you know I want you to stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone@gmail.com. at gmail.com